Welcome to Voices of Experience radio show and podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Voices of Experience podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts. No promotional fees have been paid to anyone appearing on Voices of Experience. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Voices of Experience for Wednesday, November 22nd, 2023. If you're listening to this show, you're listening to it on KIXI AM 880, KKNW 1150 AM. And uh, also, if you may be listening to another time in the future, it's on my podcast, all by the name of Voices of Experience. Today, we don't have Eric Crema. He's taking the day off. I don't know what he's doing today. but Getting an early start on that Thanksgiving dinner, no doubt. Probably so. Didn't he just go down to the coast or something and uh, do some fishing? Or am I off on that? I don't know. Seems he like did. he's doing that every other weekend. That's true. So I, I <laughs> did the target no matter if he did or not. Well, Eric, if you did, I hope you did well. So he'll be back next week. Well, we do have another guest in the studio today. His name is Jay Bechtel. He comes from us from the Bay Area, and he's here to... Go to the Seattle Seahawks game tomorrow, and guess who Jay is going to be rooting for, either Seattle or San Francisco? I don't know. Can you straighten that Does out for me? Does this help? Go Niners? Ah, I think that says it. So we brought the enemy in our tent. We maybe talk a little trash uh, football, but uh, let's, let's do we'll it. see what we can yeah, come up with. I'm sure we can come, <laughs> we'll up, come up with some something. good things. Yeah. Yes. Then, of course, um, we have Eric Ryder here in the studio and he will join in with us, I hope, today and help pinch hit for Eric Krima, who's not here. I say it every week, but today, again, I think we have a really good lineup of people. We have an uh, interesting guest who is a nationally known author, and he's written a book called The Edge. He's uh, had a number of bestsellers, and uh, he's also had a number of his books turned into TVs, David Baducci, and he's David uh, Baducci, and he's coming up in uh, just uh, a few moments, so we'll get a better introduction there. Eric Crema talked to someone from a program called Get, and that's a way to save for your college education if you have small kids right now and save a bunch of money going forward. It's very expensive, as we all, all know, to, uh, to go to college. And uh, he talked to an individual from this organization who can tell you how you can get started. We have a Clint Henderson and he's the managing editor of Points Guy. And that is not something to do with online betting. What this has to do with actually is travel tips, like saving points when you travel on your credit card, the best time to use your points in travel, and really in how you can maneuver your way through the airport during this holiday season. As Jay and I know, I picked your daughter up today at the airport. We were both there. You came in today. It was packed. Yes, so it sure you, was. you yeah, two have to get there zoo. early. Yeah. I, I think I said to Jay, uh, coming back, it's that you see traffic coming every every three or four years. You'd see it backed up like a parking lot towards, you know, like, say, 405. But, my gosh, it's kind of the way it is all the time now, and it certainly was this morning. Let's see. What else? Meandering musings today. We have Neil Peterson today. He's going to meander about personal notes. He misses personal notes and receiving them, and he wants to talk about that. Voices of History, 
not going to have an extensive Voices of History today because there was really one big, horrible event that took place 60 years ago today, and that was the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. And I think that should stand alone. We'll talk a little bit about that uh, later in the program. Uh, Timeless classic, all right? This is one, um, a famous singer. Everybody will know who this is. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about that. That's one. Some ratings uh, centers, like recordings uh, centers for rating songs of the 20th century. I saw a couple. One of this said this was the 30th best song of the 20th century. Another said maybe 15th. But the other interesting thing is that The Wife was recognized as two, in 2017 as contributing and writing the lyrics along with the primary person who performed the song. Never knew that. We found that out just uh, by doing some historical analysis here. I dug deep and found that out. Uh, let's see what else. Apple Cup show. Going to have some comments on people on their favorite Apple Cup. I went into this last week and have people call in and my intention because I thought this was the last Apple Cup. Well, we learned this week it's not going to be, but I'm still going to go ahead and have some people air what they felt was their favorite Apple Cup. Spoiler alert, they're all Cougars who called in. Now, I did send out the Huskies, though. I would have, you know, aired theirs, but they're chicken, just like they always are. Um, so I'm, I take it you were a Coug as well then. No, does that show? <laughs> oh, How'd you I'm, figure that I'm, out? I'm hurt. That, that just, oh, gosh. Eric's good. Oh, oh. yes, I, I am. I went to neither, so I don't have a dog in this fight and or, you know, a, or a cat. Or a cat. <laughs> no, no cat and dog fight for you. But anyhow, they'll weigh in, but I did send out the Huskies, so they, were, they could be a part of this. I think that's it for the introduction, so we'll be right back with the first interview in just a moment. Mine have two come to mind. 1982, Washington was on its way to the Rose Bowl, came to Pullman, and Chuck Nelson missed a short field goal. Cougars went on to win. Huskies did not go to the Rose Bowl. Second, and by far the most famous and favorite, 1997, Ryan Lee, Fab Five, beat the Huskies in Seattle for their first Rose Bowl in a long time. Mike Sweeney, and uh, he's a friend of mine. Um, as a matter of fact, I was at that Apple Cup with him in 1997. So I'm going to say right now, that was my favorite by far. That was just a wonderful game. And Ryan Leaf, I got to say, has issues later after leaving Washington State. Didn't have a great pro football career, of course, and we all know that, but he's turned out to be a wonderful man. But that guy willed that game. I have never seen someone come in and said, we aren't going to lose this game. We're going to the Rose Bowl, and he got us there. So anyhow, thank you for that, Mike, and we're going to have a few more of those uh, throughout as we go through the program. So um, let's get to our first interview today, and I said his name is Dable Budlucci, and he's a number one best-selling author and uh, one of the world's favorite storytellers as well. A lot of his uh, features have been on film, television, and he is co-founder along with his wife of the Wish You Well Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated 
for supporting literacy efforts across America. So this is my discussion with him. What inspired you to write? Reading. You know, I was a, I was a reader as a kid, and um, I love books. I love words. And I grew up in um, Richmond, Virginia, and my job during like the summer and after school, I would come up with all the adventures that we would go on. You know, I'd kind of write the scripts for our journeys and the battles we would fight and the people we would save. And I just loved using my imagination. And I was also argue with people about anything over and over anything. Mm-hmm. And they used to call me the Austin Avenue lawyer because that's where I grew up, the street I grew up on. And I actually grew up to be a trial lawyer. But I would think a lot of writers would tell you their first inspiration and motivation uh, to write was because they read a lot of books and they wanted to create one of their own. Did you have a family, like your parents, were they like educated? Did they have a lot of books around the house and all that sort of thing? Neither one of my parents went to college, uh, didn't have the opportunity, but they took us to the library every week. And I grew up in the 60s and 70s in Richmond, the old capital of the Confederacy during the middle of Jim Crow. And I could have grown up a very different person. My, I grew up in a totally segregated society. And books saved me. Libraries saved me. They allowed me to see the world and the people in it through books and made me empathetic and understanding and curious and more tolerant. And so I, I tell people that you need you need high reading skills to be economically successful particularly these days. So if you have low reading skills, you're going to be impoverished for the most part, and it's going to dictate everything that's going to happen to you and to your kids' lives as well, because if you're literacy challenged, so will your kids be. And all of our economic and social ills from crime to poverty to hunger to homelessness comes from the lack of education and the lack of reading abilities. So if you can turn that around, every dollar you put into literacy, you're going to get $10,000 back in return. Unfortunately, we don't really make that a priority. And also, unfortunately, people aren't reading books anymore. I mean, probably 10% of the country of this country read books on a consistent basis. 90% of the people, and probably 80% of those have never even opened a book other than school. And, you know, our life now is sort of immersed with social media, tech talk, and we're Our brain's attention span is shrinking. People now have a hard time reading a page because their attention span has been shrunk by social media. And our brains are built for the long form. You know, they're built for long-haul thinking. And so social media and all that, it, it brings out the worst in our brains. But books bring out the best. I couldn't agree more with that. And, uh, you've just touched on practically everything I've been concerned about. But, you know, you've kind of endorsed what I've been thinking and, and nervous about that. Uh, yeah, social media. And I know myself, I'm older and I read and things, but even my attention span has suffered some. I have to really catch myself in uh, trying to finish something like a chapter and I discipline myself. Whereas before I didn't think I had to do that. But yes, again, I'm, I'm one of those and I have to guard against it. So I can imagine if you come up in that atmosphere, it's going to be really hard to break away. Yeah, and I, and I have to tell you, over the years, when people will come up to me and say, <clears throat> you know, I hear, hear you're a writer, yeah, and she goes, I, I'm, that's really great, because I, I don't read, and, you know, I just don't have time. And years ago, I would say, I, I get it, people, everybody's busy, but I no longer do that. And here's what I'd say instead, when they tell me they don't read, they don't have time, and I, I look at them and I go, I feel so sorry for you. I am so sorry. And they look at me, what are you talking about? I said, you have no idea how much life that you're missing out on. You better start opening up a book because it will change your life. And because I really, I just feel like I need to be a huge proponent. Every person I come across that doesn't read a book, I need to turn into a reader because not only will it make their lives better, it's going to make my life better. When you were doing a lot of reading, what point did you say, okay, I'm going to take uh, pen to paper or fingers to keyboard and start writing my thoughts? So when I was, I was 
seven or eight years old, I was one of those kids that never really shut up. You know, I just talked all the time about stuff. And my mom gave me a journal when I was around that age. And she said, honey, you know, you love to read. Why don't you write some stuff down of your own? You know, that might be fun for you. And I, and I, and I did. I, I, later, my mom told me, you know, I'm really glad it's worked out for you, but I just wanted to shut you up. <laughs> you know, I need a little peace and quiet, actually. Um, but it really changed my life because it allowed me to see that there was an opportunity for me to participate in, in the fact of authoring things, you know, and I could become one of the people that people, other people would read, which was fascinating for me. And back then, it was all imagination, so it was all going to be made-up stuff, all fiction. And and I would write about things that I'd see during the day. I'd write about people that I talked to and about our conversations. It wasn't that the stories were any good. I was learning how to build stories through that. And I was learning about the things you needed to do, you know, to become a writer. And one of those things is to be curious about things. And I remember I read a book when I was a little boy called Harriet the Spy. You know, she was spying on all of her schoolmates, and they found her journal, and they got really mad at her because they felt like she was spying on them. But I did that. I, I, I would eavesdrop on people, you know, when I was in elementary school. When I was in law school, I would hang out in the corridors and just watch people go by and see how they interacted because I was fascinated by people. And I, you know, all of those things contribute to my skills as a novelist because it's not just the skills of, you know, taking pen to paper or keys to a keyboard. It's about understanding human beings because ultimately that's what we're all writing about regardless of whether we write fiction or nonfiction. We're talking about the human experience. Yeah, I think a word you use there is you have a tremendous curiosity. And that yes. really is a platform for a lot of things. So your latest book is called The Edge. What is it about? So the first novel in that series is The 620 Man. And I named that, that because Travis Devon is a former Army Ranger who left the Army under a black cloud that he feels great guilt about. So as part of his penance, he went and got his MBA and started working in New York's financial district on Wall Street because he hated it. And he would take the 620 train in from Westchester County every morning to Wall Street. And that's where that name came from. And something you saw on the train... Is, is, is the result of, is the murder mystery that happened in, in the novel and sort of throws him headlong into the story. And during the course of that, uh, he's approached by a guy who works for Homeland Security. He was a retired two-star general. And he tells Devon, I know what you did in the Army. I'm going to give you a choice. You can either go to Fort Leavenworth and spend the rest of your life in the stockade there, or you can come and work for me. And Devine decides to go work for him. So basically, in the edge, Devine is dropped into this little town in Putnam, Maine, on the coast, very unforgiving, isolated place. A woman up there named Jenny Silkwell, who's from Putnam, she was a CIA agent. She's murdered. They found her body. Someone shot her. So he has to go up there and figure out, was she killed because of her CIA connection, and did they torture her before they killed her, and she's got secrets that, that she gave them, and do we have to be worried about that? Or is it something having to do with her hometown, about her past up there, and did someone up there kill her? So he's dropped into Putnam. He has to deal with all the local police and all the fascinating characters up there to try to ferret out who killed Jenny Silkwell and why. And I, I built Travis Devine so I could sort of drop him anywhere in the world to see if he could survive. He's got all the masculine, all the physical capabilities. You know, he was a combat veteran, so he knows how to defend himself. But there's also a human side to him. He's big on situational awareness. He goes, he never looks at his phone. When he's walking down the street, he's watching everybody else because in the Middle East, that's what kept him alive. So I, I just, I sold this series to Netflix. They're going to make a, a series of movies about Travis Devine. And one of the things they said they loved about him, he said, you know, you built this guy, he's kind of like the American James Bond. Instead of a tuxedo and a martini, he's got a Glock and a lunch pail. <laughs> and we can put him anywhere, and he can solve problems and come out alive. And I like I like that about him. How much uh, do you see yourself in Travis? The part I see about myself in Travis is really that sort of the human side, the part that 
sees everything and tries to understand everybody and is just curious about what's going on and wants to know what makes people tick. If you can figure out what makes people tick, you can almost predict their behavior going forward, which for a guy like Travis Devine is actually very important. So for me, that's what I contribute to Divine. I love to get inside people's heads and their hearts uh, because I think that's those are important places and those are sweet spots for people. And once you can understand sort of the human condition and other folks, it's amazing the fascinating stories you can write. How many books have you written? Fifty-five. I started scrolling down last night and going through it, and it kept going down, down, down. And I went, wow. <laughs> I, you know, I was going to start adding them up so I could be smart and say, oh, you wrote 37 books. So I said, I gave up. And I said, all right, so 55 <laughs> books. What books do you read for pleasure? I read everything. I mean, I love British murder mysteries. I, as a kid, I grew up reading Sherlock Holmes and Agatha Christie. Um, I like... Uh, Mysteries today written by British authors like Anne Cleves and Ruth Ware, Walter Mosley. I read books by nonfiction books and biographies about John Meacham, David McCulloch. I like books about stuff I don't know a whole lot about. I'm reading a book now by Susan Casey. She's an oceanographer called The Underworld. We know more about the planet Mars than we do about the Pacific Ocean. So, you know, places I can go, the books can take me, and things that I can learn that I didn't know before. That just that just drives my world. And, and what is your writing process? Do you do what a lot of authors do, I read, that they finish the, the end of the story first and then they work back? No, I never know the ending of the story before I sit down to write it. It grows organically for me. I don't count words or pages. I tend to write each day until the tank is empty. I don't have, a, have to have the same place to write. I'm a plane, train, automobile kind of guy. I can write anywhere. It doesn't really matter. The perfect place to write is not a physical place. It's, a, it's an emotional place in your head. If you got that place right, you can write in the middle of 100 people. Are you a disciplined writer where you say, I'm going to shut the door and write for an hour every day, or does you, it just comes to you and you start writing? Yeah, every day is typical for being atypical. So I, no two days are alike. Some days I write for seven hours, eight hours a day. Some days I write for 20 minutes, and it's just not there. Some days I'm researching. Some days I'm interviewing people to get material. So every day is a little bit different, which I kind of like. So when I sit down to write, though, and I'm, I'm and everything is crystallized, I, I'm just lost. No, no, I don't know the realize the time. I don't know how many pages I've written, how many words I've written. That doesn't really matter. I just write and write until I've got nothing left to say for that day. All right, so here we go. We're coming back into Voices of Experience. Thank you very much to uh, David Baldacci, and uh, great talking to him. If you'd like to get a copy of his book, this one he talked about today, it's called The Edge. All you need to do is Google The Edge Book. You see, that's all you need to do. I don't have to go www.davidbaldacci, of course. I can't even pronounce it. i got to work on that. .com or back and forth. All you need to do is the Edge book. You can Google that and get a look at it and see if you want to get it. Anyhow, so we're not going to let you get by any longer just sitting here and um, finding about uh, your way into what you're thinking about today. All right. First of all, why do you love the Seahawks? That's not for me. I know. <laughs> I just love to get that stare. All right, tell us why San Francisco is going to win this game. Well, I think as uh, when we were driving into this morning, I told you, I said, I'm shocked the Niners are seven-and-a-half-point favorites. I mean, we're in Seattle. This is the toughest place. The Niner guys love coming here, but this is a divisional game. The place is going to be going nuts. Pete Carroll will have them ready. So I'm just uh, – 
I'm surprised that the, the the spread is uh, it, it is what it is. It just I don't think that that's relevant for this rivalry, right? Well, you know, when you say that the Giants, 49ers, excuse yeah. me, the 49ers love coming here. Yeah. Is that really true, or do they just say that? Well, George Kittle did. Kittle this morning uh, has said he loves coming here because the he goes, there's not a better place where fans hate us. Oh. And, and he goes, I love it. Now, Kittle said it. I mean, not every single guy on the team maybe didn't say it, but Kittle did. He goes, and so I think they embrace the the 12th man, right, and they embrace the rivalry. I mean, this has been a, a strong rivalry for a long time. And so uh, – it's a huge game for for them, and I, I again, as I said, you know, the the point spread was surprising to me because I kind of think you throw that out uh, right now. Although, having said all that, the Seahawks got some significant injuries, right? Very true. And so that's not going to help. You need Geno Smith at full speed. Um, you know, the uh, Walker, the running back. You know, it's it's like, hey, when the Niners a couple weeks ago were all banged up, we didn't have Debo, we didn't have Trent Williams, I and mean, we didn't play as well. I mean, you, sure. you know, it, it's hard to. Uh, beat a quality opponent with less than you know your your gun full of bullets. So the Seahawks have got that. Uh, unfortunately for them, for, I mean you got injuries in football constantly, right? But that's a bad one. Those are bad ones for them. The Niners just lost uh, Hufunga. We were talking about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's an All Pro safety. He's out for the year. So you're gonna have in- both teams are gonna have injuries, but those are some big ones for the Seahawks. Is this your first game at Lumen? Sure is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can't wait. See, I'm All looking right. for. I'm George Kittle. I can't wait too. Okay. Right? I think it's going to be uh, everyone. Everyone I've talked to has said it's it's nuts. It's loud. You're, you're oh yeah, it's going to it be is. a great experience. Oh, definitely. So I can't wait. I can't okay. Wait. Well, yeah. good. We'll talk more. But yeah. that's great to hear because I know it's it's going to be a good game and the atmosphere is going yeah. to be wonderful. Yeah, There's no yeah. doubt about it. Thursday night and looking uh, very forward I just, to I that game. I just hope game. the Niners could uh, maybe we'll eat a little turkey on the on uh, at, at uh, on your field after Richard Sherman did that about ten years ago. <laughs> did we do that in your uh, field? Was that Levi's? Did we? Richard oh, Sherman that was that stadium. Oh, oh yeah, God. Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, maybe, that would be returned. Wouldn't you know, it? maybe maybe we'll have some turkey legs out there for the Niners after the game. Okay, all right, very interesting. Yes, I do remember that. Uh, all right, let's skip on now to the next uh, interview, and this is Neil Peterson and his uh, meandering musings, as we call it. And today he's talking about personal notes. The value of a personal note. Yesterday, I had an unusual experience. Yet it started out as nothing particularly special. I stopped by my mailbox to pick up any mail that I might have. In the mailbox was an envelope, not surprisingly addressed to me, all normal so far. But then I opened it and started to read the one-pager that was inside. The first thing that was unusual was that the top half of the one-pager was a quote from Henry David Thoreau. It is something to be able to paint a particular picture or to carve a statue and so to make a few objects beautiful. But it is far more glorious to carve and paint the very atmosphere and medium through which we look to affect the quality of the day. That is the highest of arts, unquote. The bottom half of the one-pager was addressed to me, and it was just three sentences long. It said, Neil Thoreau was right. Improving others' day is the highest of arts. And you always bring this to the table. You always improve the quality of my day. And I'm sure this is true for many others as well. Thank you for doing so. The note was signed by a friend of mine, Jim. 
I've changed his name to protect his privacy. Holy cow, when I read this, I was flummoxed. I was breathless. My mouth was wide open. I have no idea what sparked Jim to write such a note and send it to me. Jim is a good friend, but I have not seen or talked to him in months. I have exchanged a couple of emails with him during those months, but not about anything personal. Why, I'm wondering, would someone sit down, take the time to write such a thoughtful, considerate, kind, generous, complimentary, and loving piece of work, and then take the time to address an envelope, put a stamp on it, and get to the local post office for mailing? Frankly, I'm having a difficult time thinking about whether I have ever, in almost seven decades, received such a note. I can't remember ever getting one. Jim's words are so touching. They make me feel so warm inside, so good, so valued, so seen. I'm so thankful and grateful that he feels this way about my presence in his life. It is very humbling to receive something like this. As I've reflected on this note, I am so impressed that Jim would take the time to bring together his thoughts, to share his feelings, and to transmit them to me. What this says about Jim is the real story of this note, as far as I'm concerned. For a person to collect their thoughts and observations about another human being is one thing. To do that and be able to articulate it and be willing to write it down on paper is another thing. And finally, to be willing to share your thoughts with the other human being by mailing it snail mail is still a step beyond. What a gift to the rest of us to have such a friend like Jim. We need more Jims. Or to state it another way, we need to act more like Jim. His note has inspired me to write a similarly short but very personal note to others. Notes that let the other person know what they mean to me, how their presence in my life has been a blessing, how the world is a better place in part because of them. With so many of my peers passing, with so many taking their last breaths, it raises the question of why should we wait for the celebration of life event to say what we feel they meant to us. Why don't we tell them while they're still living what they mean to each one of us? I have made a pledge to myself to start writing notes to friends, telling them what they mean to me and others. Thank you, Jim, for showing me the way, the value of a personal note, and thank you for being such a good friend. Very nice, Neil. That's Neil Peterson. I haven't got my personal note yet, Neil, but that's okay. I'll wait. Um, that's, again, Neil Peterson is meandering musings. Always really enjoy those. Uh, you can visit all of his meandering musings. And, Eric, you said there's about, what, 20 now or getting close to that? Yeah, quite a few. Quite a few. So, yeah, and all you need to do, it's his podcast, and all you need to do is go to meanderingmusings.net. And you're that's there. Right. Yep, or you can subscribe anywhere you find podcasts. Excellent. All right, now, let me forget this. He does do this as a column as well, and you can go to neilstrips.com and read what he's talking about as well. It goes back to like 2014, so he's got a bunch of those. So um, let's see, Jay. The 49ers, have they always been your favorite foot, NFL football team? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Grew up with – grew up. Uh, with them and started, we started going to games at Keysar until one day after the Niners had a close loss, 
a full beer bottle went flying over my head. I was probably about 10 years old, and that was the last game my dad ever took took me to until I uh, was old enough to go on my own. And then we were then we moved to Candlestick. Okay. And where was Keysar? Where was that stadium? Keysar is right at the end of Golden Gate Park. Uh, oh, on the okay. I guess you'd call it the eastern end of Golden Gate. So Golden Gate, Golden Gate Park starts basically at the Pacific Ocean. It goes east, and at the end of it is Keysar. And today it's been remodeled, and it's about a 10,000-seat high school um, Pop Warner type football stadium. They still play games at high school. My high school oh, okay. team plays there. I was going to ask that. What, yeah, what they, was they there play. Now? Yeah, they play like my high school plays there against SH. It's a typical city game. Uh, that's an example of a, of, a, of a team, but other teams play there too. And what was the capacity there when it was in playing in the NFL? Oh, I think 50,000, 60,000. Okay, it was that big. It, yeah. And then after the Niners moved uh, to Candlestick, it was still. Uh, you know, it was still there, and our when I was in high school, our high school games were at Keysar, so we'd have like two thousand people in the sixty thousand, mm. and we'd all sit at the fifty yard line, of right, course. basically. Yeah, and uh, the and then they tore it down, you know, years later and made the smaller, uh, smaller field. Great historical uh, vignette there. Yeah, it's great absolutely. To hear. I, yeah, I've heard of Keysar. I didn't know where it was at. Um, let's see, what do we have next coming out? Are we going to bring Eric Crema? on in just a moment, and he has an interview we had earlier in the week, and he's talked about the Get Foundation before, and let's uh, catch up with uh, Eric and his guest. And I am welcoming Luke Miner, director of Washington's College Savings Plans. You've heard of them, Get and Dream Ahead, as well as 529. We'll talk about these programs right now. How are you doing, Luke? Doing great, Eric. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for making the drive up. Let's uh, get right into it and talk about the differences between the plans because it can be a little confusing if it's the first time you know, you've heard of this. Definitely. So these two plans under the Washington College Savings Plans or WA 529 umbrella, okay. they're both college savings plans or, and it goes beyond college. We, we can uh, do work readiness training, that sort of thing. But to break down what these two programs are. They're ways to help families save for future educational and training expenses. And they're very similar in that they have uh, tax-free growth and withdrawals for families when saving for higher education expenses. But then the differences start from there. The GET program has been around for 25 years. It's a prepaid tuition program that helps families prepay future college expenses. So it's tied to the cost of tuition inflation in our state. And families are buying peace of mind that no matter what happens with the economy, financial markets, they've already prepaid that expense and it's covered. Dream Ahead is our newer program, and it's actually not that new anymore. It's been around for five years, uh, serving tens of thousands of Washington families. And that uh, features a series of investment options that do carry investment risk. But there's a lot of customizability, and it's kind of the DIY approach to college savings, more like building options within a 401k or a Roth IRA retirement plan. You can choose your investment options from a menu we offer, tailored based on your risk or your student's age, and you just have more flexibility. And the two programs can work together to help families save towards that full cost of college or career training. You know, I've known you for well over 10 years, and we've been talking about this about once a year, and I'm always amazed how it continues to grow and change to meet the demands of consumers. That's impressive. Yeah, it's, it's uh, a great uh, product and service to be a part of to help Washington families save for future college expenses and be able to adapt as we get feedback. Earlier on with these programs, they were more limited to the pure college expenses, more mm-hmm. like the four-year university and community college, tuition, room and board, books and supplies. But over time, 
the uses have continued to expand. You can now use these for tools and other costs associated with apprenticeship programs, technical and trade schools, a variety of certificate programs that people might go back to get to further their professional career. Very flexible in the way they're used. They can be used for, you know, the traditional model is parents or grandparents saving for a young child, or uh, now we're seeing it's a lot more common for people to save for older kids or themselves if they want to go back and, again, advance their career through technical training or or going back to get a four-year degree or an advanced degree. You'd mentioned as, say, your children get a little older, are there limits, like yearly limits that you can uh, put toward either one of these plans? The, uh, the limit that comes into play with 529 plans, there isn't technically a limit, but there is a gift tax exclusion amount that families will want to pay attention to. And that's, okay. that's best discussed with a, a tax advisor if you think you're going to be putting tens of thousands of dollars within one year aside. But for most families, they're not up against that ceiling. They're saving what they can. Uh, the best thing families can do in most cases is set up an ongoing monthly contribution, whether it comes out of your paycheck or whether you have an automatic deposit coming from your bank account. Figure out within your family budget what you can afford, uh, free up, especially as, you know, uh, I have a daughter who's in daycare right now. We're definitely going to be thinking about when she's going to kindergarten and we have lower daycare expenses, shifting some of the, that monthly amount towards an automatic funding of her college savings. That's a really good point because childcare is extremely expensive, mm-hmm. particularly if uh, both parents, if you will, are working or if it's a single parent working. Uh, it, can, it can equal thousands of dollars if you have a couple of children. Uh, per month. So once that expense is sort of gone and they're in school, great idea. Maybe increase at that point. Definitely. And and other things where you have money that's freed up, you can do that kind of thing. Uh, another important thing to consider with these programs is it's very low bar to get started. It takes 10 or 15 minutes to actually sign up on our website at 529.wa.gov and as little as $25. We don't charge any enrollment fees or that kind of thing. So you can easily get started, pick your investment options if you're doing Dream Ahead, choose the number of units you want to buy if you're doing the GET program. But the minimum to get started is $25 with either program. So you can, if you just want to get started, but you don't have a lot or you want to think about, you know, just make that commitment, get started, do what you can now. But again, the best thing families can be doing is to regularly contribute over time and get the family involved. We all know that uh, grandparents love to dote on the grandchildren as we're about to experience when we're traveling over to visit my parents and they love doting on on my daughter but sure. you know they can do that in a variety of forms toys are still okay but you can make a contribution to a child's account whether it's a birthday holiday that kind of thing so get the family involved make those regular efforts and it will all add up over time well and we see if you don't do something like this what the ramifications are for people with say student debt particularly in a, a place such as the Puget Sound, where it's very expensive to get into, say, your first home or a condo or something like that. And then if you have on top of that tens of thousands of dollars of student loans, that's just crippling. It really is. And that is really what our main target is with these programs, is to help families reduce their reliance on student loans. By saving now and making small commitments over time that can add up, you're really reducing uh, that debt burden for a student so they can uh, launch into the the economy and get their first job and buy a home and and be financially secure. That's a- what we're all about. Absolutely, and as you say, as a as a sister or a uh, an older sister or sibling, if you will, or an uncle or a grandparent, this is a great way. Say when special things like birthdays or anniversaries or holidays come along, you can contribute. 
Exactly. Anyone can contribute to an account when it's, once it's opened. And even you don't have to be the parent of a child to open an account. Anyone can open an account for a child or, again, themselves to further their education. It's a powerful tool that families can use to become financially secure, and you can learn more about it at 529.wa.gov. You just st- stole my thunder. I was going to give that out, 529.wa.gov. That's 529.wa.gov. Learn about it. It's a great website. It's really easy to navigate. Luke, as always, thank you for your time. Congratulations on all that has been going on with your department and as director, your team. Uh, that's fantastic. So great job. All right. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Take care. My favorite Apple Cup by far was 1992 in Pullman. Drew Bledsoe was the quarterback at the time for the Cougars. When the game started, it was very dark. And then it started snowing. Everything changed so quickly as the snow just pelted. And it was just an amazing sight to see. And the best of all was that the Cougars prevailed. All right, that's Brother Bob who said that. And I was at that game too. A couple comments on it is that getting up in the morning, I got gas at the gas station just because, or just because I thought maybe there may be some snow in the area. Didn't think any was going to really come, but I filled up the tank and it did. And it just snowed. And I, we got over a foot, foot and a half and the game just turned into a snowball. And we ended up, I think 44, 23 pulling away and Huskies were ranked four or five. And we had a really good team. Drew Bedsell was our quarterback. We went on to a bowl that year. But what was interesting is uh, around Pullman, we were driving away. We get to Colfax. That's about 12 miles away where the court uh, here real, real was made favorite. today or this week. And uh, when we got 12 miles away, there wasn't any snow for the rest of the drive. I mean, it seemed like the clouds came in, hit Pullman, freaked out the Huskies, and the rest uh, kind of went our way. So ironically, the Huskies did not do well in snow. Exactly. Wow. You see? That is, <laughs> yeah. that is, that is ironic. You know? Doesn't make a lot of sense. No, but, exactly. Uh, yeah. Good, see? Good. See? Yeah. They're, they're, uh, good insight. Absolutely. They're phony. No, I'm kidding. I'm stopping. <laughs> I am stopping now. Some of my best friends are Huskies. Okay. This is Except not on. tomorrow. Or next. No, except next not Saturday. on Saturday. That's not correct. So I, I do want to take a serious moment here, and that is to pay tribute to a man by the name of Frank Sidarius. Uh, I had him on the show many times talking about estate planning. Well, um, Frank passed away last week, and I actually went to his funeral on Friday. And a uh, couple of major memories with him, but one of them was five years ago, my wife became president of the Donico Pet Clinic. And that's a clinic nonprofit that helps homeless and low-income people for vet care, gives it to them for free. And she's working very hard on it. She needed an attorney on the board. And, um, okay, I knew, I, I knew Frank, not great, but I called him and I said, Frank, this is what's going on. Would you consider doing this? He said, gave it about 10 seconds in between. And I thought, what's he going to say? And he Absolutely. He said, you know what? Sounds like a great organization and I'm stepping in and I can't tell you, and Marty can tell you more, how much he has meant or meant to that clinic and keeping it going. They had some issues, growing pains, and he was always there. And, um, you know, I just can't speak 
highly enough about a man, and he, uh, he's really missed. I mean, the church was packed on Queen Anne Hill. And I just want to read something that was given to us as we left in the definition of peace. And this says everything about Frank Sidereus. It does not mean, like, the definition of peace. It does not mean to be in a place where there is no noise, trouble, or hard work. It means to be in the midst of those things and still be calm in your heart. And that's who he was, Mr. Calm. I got it. I got your back. I'm going to take care of you. Frank and Mo, you were wonderful, and um, we really miss you. So let's see. Let's do another Apple Cup comment. Why don't we do that? Sure. Hey, Paul, this is Benny, WSU grad of 2003 and one of your executive producers. Well, I guess I'd like to share one of my favorite Apple Cup memories, and it was the 2002 Apple Cup when Washington State University star quarterback and Heisman hopeful Jason Gesser was actually injured during the game. And the Cougs were leading 20-10 to 10 with less than four minutes to go in the game. Of course, we brought in our backup Matt Kegel to replace Gesser. And he was doing okay until an untimely interception to freshman cornerback Nate Robinson, who forced an overtime. But that wasn't the only overtime. There were two more overtimes. And on the third overtime, the Cougs unfortunately missed the field goal. And we ended up losing that game in Martin Stadium, 29-26. to 26. Even though we came away with a loss in Pullman, I've never seen so much grit and determination from two teams that made it that exciting. Win or lose, go Cougs. Welcome to today's Voices of History. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Safely on the ground, he had barely cut the engine when the crowd reached the plane. They shouted, Lindbergh, Lindbergh. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. Welcome to this edition to Voices of History. This one's going to be short because... Uh, the very beginning of the introduction, you had Walter Cronkite and 60 years ago today announced the death of President Kennedy. And I just wanted to pay special tribute to him. And we were talking earlier about some new documentaries coming out. That's right. Yeah. There's three of them now streaming that coinciding with this 60th anniversary here. And the thing I was thinking today and yesterday is that certainly that death was uh hard to comprehend, and it still is for many people who live through it, but because it was such a turning point, we, we feel, whether it's accurate or not, it felt that way. But I was thinking, you know, the documentaries, Eric, that you mentioned, mm-hmm. both of them are on the death, the doctors or something who were in the Parkland Hospital, I guess, and what else? Uh, yeah, what the, the doctors one. saw is one of them. Uh, the History Channel has one called Kennedy that's out now, and uh, another one that's on Hulu from National Geographic called JFK One Day in America. So. Yeah, and you know, kind of be, uh, the point of what I'm trying to make here is that so many of those, everything's on his death on November 22nd, 1963. Right. But that's one day, and I, you just said that. But we've lost sight of what I felt what a great president he was when he was in office. First of all, phenomenally, he served two years and 10 months. That's it. You know, it was a very short period of time. In that length of time, 
in the Cuban Missile Crisis, we were under tremendous pressure. I urge anyone to read about that historical moment in our time. They call it 13 days in October. Um, number of specials on that. But what comes to mind is literally, I don't think people understand how close we came. And I mean close to a nuclear war. And the more you explore it, the more scary you are. I just saw a special uh, that was made some years ago, and it was uh, called Fog of War, uh, Robert McNamara. And he was the Secretary of Defense at the time. And he basically says, we don't know how we got out of that. I mean, it was such a miracle. Mm-hmm. But there were a couple things that did go, and I think one of the things that they always kept in mind, we got to keep our head and our hands and minds around Khrushchev. What we've got to make an out for him, that he's not going to be embarrassed. We have to. They kept concentrating on that, and they found that solution. Saved the world, literally. That's just one. First president introduced civil rights. I mean, a bill to Congress. He, all in 1961, said we're going to go to the moon. He put things together. Unfortunately, he wasn't alive to see it, but we did land on the moon in, uh, what, July of uh, 1969. Nuclear test ban treaty came under him. Didn't have a very, uh, Congress had backed a lot of what he proposed, but they certainly did there. And uh, again, that was a major milestone. And of course, one of his first initiatives was the Peace Corps. That all came under him in a very short period of time. And I just wanted to bring those things up because, again, we're talking about this day. It certainly was uh, marked in history 60 years ago today, but also what he stood for and what a great president I thought he was. Thank you for your time on that. You have been listening to Voices of History. If you have historical events that you would like to share, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. This is Greg Witter, WSU class of 1984. When it comes to the Apple Cup 2021 at Husky Stadium, my son Ryan, who's now 25, he's been to every Apple Cup played in Seattle. At the time, he's living in Los Angeles, and he calls me a few weeks before the game and asks who we're going to the Apple Cup with. And I say, Ryan, you know, the weather's going to be bad. The Cougs have been struggling in the Apple Cup lately, especially at Husky Stadium. I, I think we need to watch this one in the warmth of the family room. And his response was, Dad, you never know where my career could take me. This may be the last opportunity we have to rush the field at Husky Stadium together. And uh, I'm damn near in tears, right? So I immediately get tickets, and we go. And all I do, do I go with Ryan? I go with my brother and sister, fellow Cougs. And while all of us have been to Apple Cups with each other, we had never been to Apple Cups together with each other. Anyway, we all went, rushed the field, and uh, truly one of the great memories. Thanks. Go Cougs. All right, so welcome back to Voices of Experience. Again, that was Greg Witter. Love his thoughts on that. All right, so we're talking again about the big game tomorrow, or I'm going to say it's a big game for everybody because San Francisco leads us by a game. We could tie them first again, 49ers for first. I'll pledge here, if the Seahawks don't win and go on and win the division, I'm going to be behind the 49ers the rest of the way. How about you? Will you be a Seahawks fan or... Oh, that's tough. That's not, it's almost like rooting for the Dodgers if they beat the Giants. I, I just, it's still hard for me to. Oh, I know. To, to Believe do that, me. To do that. No. You know, so. Um, Trying to although get an I do, opportunity I, here I'll in tell Seattle. You who, will, who will? My wife. 
Oh, she will. Of course, she, she loves, loves Pete. Pete. She Carol. loves Pete. So, but then who would you root for? You'll, you'll have, you've got half the. Uh, but who would you've you got root half for? The, half the who, family. Who would you root for? Then? Who would I root for if the um, if the Seahawks knock the 49ers out? Um, yeah, I mean, okay, uh, I'll give you the. Oh, I know who I'd root for: the Lions. That's, okay, that's then. a good. That's a good. Well, um, you know. All right, well, being honest, then. that's a good story. They're they're uh, you know they're up and coming. Seahawks yeah. have a have a Super Bowl win, so you know I don't think the Lions do. Okay, well, all right. <laughs> I'll tell you what. I'm going to get uh, to somebody I know. People inside the Seahawks. We're going to put you on the scoreboard tomorrow on the big screen. Say this guy. You know, they're going to point to Go you. Go Niners. So we're going to do that. Let me write that down. Good. good. <laughs> all right. Go I guess you. It's better yeah, you to got have. Will- hey, Willow. I got Willow, and that's really Willow important. Willow loves Pete. Yeah, and I do too. I, I do. I loved Pete when he was at USC. I really sure. did. You bet. He was fantastic. All right, fair enough. Didn't get all I wanted, but, you know, that's life. (laughs) Let's do another Apple Cup comment. Why not? All right. Coming up towards the end here. Hey, Paul, it's Sherry, diehard Coogan Redmond. I'd say my favorite Apple Cup probably goes way back to 1982 for several reasons. It was the first time in 28 years the WSU-UW rivalry game was played in Pullman. Cougs had lost eight straight, and we'd only won two games that season. The Huskies were ranked number five and favored by 18, and they were ahead by 10 at halftime. But the Cougs showed up in the second half and came roaring back to upset the Huskies 24-20 to and knock them out of the Rose Bowl. The following week, I married a third-generation Husky. I know the Cougs say, how could you? He had made plans for us to take a delayed honeymoon, and I remind him it was, in fact, late because it was 10 years before the UW played in the Rose Bowl. <laughs> we'll celebrate our 41st anniversary on the 27th of November. Go Cougs! All right, so we are back, and um, some more comments we have, obviously, on the Apple Cup. We'll see how things Turn out on Saturday at 1 p.m. And as I mentioned, I thought that this was going to be the last Apple Cup. A lot of WSU people weren't happy about us continuing this, but I got to disagree. I think that uh, our president, Kirk Schultz, and athletic director, Pat Chun, did the right pragmatic thing we need to do. And that's a series that um, it's not going to have probably all of the limelight it had before because now we're not going to play over Thanksgiving weekend. We're going to play the games uh, in September. But, hey, life is about change. This is changing. I applaud Kurt Schultz and Pat Chun for, in this difficult time for both Oregon State and Washington State, that persevering through it and still making whatever we can work. It's a different world out there. We all know that with uh, college athletics. It's amazing, and it's just moving in so many different directions. Any comments on that? Do you have any? Uh... Well, you're right. It won't have Rose Bowl implications, you know, anymore. But I, I, I'm with you. You guys got to keep that tradition. It's still a huge in-state rivalry. It would be terrible if it, uh, if it evaporated, which, as you said, was in, uh, it was in danger of that happening. <clears throat> right. Now, at least you've got that, and uh, you got to, you got to keep it going. I agree with you. And Oregon and Oregon State are working on it as well. We were Same. all bitter. We all wanted to water, walk away from the table and say we're taking our marbles and going home. But that's not what you, what you need to do here. And I think I did write something when this all hit that uh, in the Seattle Times in uh, a column, and they printed it. But I said, you know, we have a president, Kurt Schultz, and all this thing happened so quickly. But I said, you know, there's one thing about 
I've observed him and other presidents of Washington State, and he's got that in common with all of them. He doesn't panic. And they're taking steps to really make the university whole again and do things um, in his control that he will make happen, and he's doing it. So that's, that's just the way it is. Anything? I, you got another comment? Yeah, no, I no, I, I I'm with you, and it, it, the alternative was was worse, right? Meaning Absolutely. no game at all, right? And uh, it's too bad as you're going to have to play earlier in the year because you get you're, you're used to it being a late November game, right? Right. Cold weather, snow, and all that. You probably won't have that in uh, in September. But there, there's a lot again, of Cougars saying, eh, "I kind of like that because you yeah. go to Pullman in uh, November. There's been a few snow bowls right. we talk about, right. and so yeah, it'll be different, but yeah." But gotta, you gotta, Life's about you, you got to keep you got to keep that, that tradition going. For it's sure. taken me a little while to get there, but hey, yeah. you got to step back and, yeah. and see it. So good. Thank you for that. Um, your comments there, Jay. It was very helpful. I think we're out of time. I'm sorry we weren't able to get to one of the interviews we were going to have today. We'll get it on next week. And that's Clint Henderson. We'll still have time. He's going to talk about uh, holiday travel. Still got plenty of time to talk about that as well. So I'll have him back next week. And also, I'm going to have on a gentleman by the name of Lawrence Pintak and um, making sense of the Middle East from a historical expense uh, perspective, because we see the daily things that occur there. Lawrence uh, was the uh, dean of the Murrow College at Washington State. But he, before he came to that, he was a CBS correspondent for 40 years, and he was in the Middle East for most of that. He's written books on it. He knows really about what's happening. And uh, he gave me kind of a broad overview of the history and what's going on now. I learned a lot from it. I hope you will next week, but we're going to cover that as well. Again, Voices of Experience airs on uh, Wednesdays at 3 p.m. You probably know that if you're listening and is simulcast with uh, Hubbard sister station, KKNW, 1150 a.m. And then it's rebroadcast on Sundays at 11 a.m. want to thank uh, Neil Peterson, Eric Crema, Eric Ryder, Benny Mathers, and of course, Jay Bechtel for being here today. Quote of the week. We seek a free flow of information, a nation that is afraid to let its people judge the truth or falsehood in an open market is a nation afraid of its people. President John F. Kennedy, this week's Timeless Classic is coming up next, only on Kixie. You'll hear the whole thing, half of it or so on KKNW. And if it's on my podcast because of licensing issues, you will not hear it. Have a great rest of the week and happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. This week's Timeless Classic was the best-selling single by this artist during his solo career. He admitted that his wife was responsible for most of the lyrics. It peaked at number three on the Billboard Hot 100. The Recording Industry Association of America listed this song as number 30 of every song recorded in the 20th century. Released in October of 1971, John Lennon and Yoko Ono who officially received co-writing credit in 2017. Imagine. Imagine that.